Hey there, Health Bite community. Welcome back to Health Bite, the podcast created to provide you with small, actionable bites to support you in your path towards better physical, mental, and emotional well being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. This week, I have a special guest, Atusa Rubenstein. She is former editor in chief of 17 Magazine, Swoon, and founder and former editor of chief of Cosmo Girl. She is currently connecting with her community via her Substack named Atusa Unedited. And as she calls it, it is a love letter to her readers. She joins me today for a casual conversation where we talk about her journey from a high-powered position in a high-powered world, her courageous decision to pivot, her rendezvous with weight gain and weight loss, and what that represented to her, as well as a whole host of other stuff, like the Persian community, which to which I can relate, people-pleasing, childhood abuse, being a mother, living with intention, and so much more. She shares with us a ton of pearls that I try and highlight throughout this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So here we go. Today, I have a wonderful guest with us, Atusa Rubenstein, who is the former editor and chief of 17 Magazine, the magazine that we all crazed over way back when, as well as founder and editor-in-chief of Cosmo Girl. She is currently an author, as she mentioned, writing love letters to her readers in her substack that is named Atusa Unedited. And we can find that at atusa.substack.com, which will be in our show notes. Atusa, welcome to Health Bite. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's super fun to be here with you. I'm so glad to have you. As we mentioned before we started recording, I have been reading your love letters, which I absolutely love. I think it is so interesting and timely, actually, your journey from going from this person who was behind the scenes, as you mentioned, of Seventeen and Cosmo Girl, these magazines that we all fanned over as uh, youngsters, to this kind of more mature, can I say, state of intentional living, I think is, is the way I would describe it. And I would love if you would share with your readers a little bit, and with the listeners, a little bit about that journey. How I went from one to the other. Yeah, I mean, for sure, when I was working, you know, the way that I describe myself today would be unconscious. You know, in some ways, of course, I was extremely vibrant. I was doing great work. I was having a lot of fun. Um, The magazines were very successful. And in some ways, I was embraced because I was very young when I became an editor-in-chief. I was 26 years old, which today I think uh, women and men in their 20s are doing big things, particularly in the digital world. Back then, it was kind of unheard of. It's incredible. It was kind of crazy. And so I was always being written about and all of this jism jazz. But my foundation was not solid enough to support that kind of like a meteoric rise. So behind the scenes, you know, so on the New York Times, I'm the superstar, but behind the scenes, I was cheating on my husband. I, you know, I I just was like a different, there there was definitely an underbelly. (laughs) 
you know, at the height of my career, I just had kind of had enough. Like I felt that at any moment I could be exposed. I remember Britney Spears had had like a freak attack and it was caught on video and, you know, with, with the bat and shaving her head and all this stuff. I remember thinking, I kind of get where she's at. <laughs> and Gawker, which was this, you know, it was the beginning of social media. They yeah. were right about me every single day, every day. And I just didn't want to embarrass my family, you know, as a Persian girl, like bringing shame to my family is certainly the last thing I wanted to do. I right. loved that I was on Charlie Rose and in the New York Times, that was A++ for them. Right. So I didn't want to expose them to the other side of my life. So I just kind of stopped. At first I thought, you know, I wanted to explore digital media, but to be honest with you, at that point, digital was not where it is today. And people at my kind of caliber just weren't there. It wasn't enticing. And I remember at one point I kept turning down deals and my husband was like, it just doesn't seem like you want to be in business. You know, one of the things that I really needed to look at dirt that, that I couldn't when I was working is that I'm an incest survivor. That is kind of where I started, honestly. And, and wow. so that, that is the beginning of what was obviously a psychological journey, a spiritual journey. It was a physical journey. And yeah, and so I definitely am in a very, very different place. My spiritual life is very important to me. My physical health, of course, like anybody who gets older and is conscious, right. that's more important to me today. Yeah. You know, I'm really interested in, you know, taking you back to that time when you were super successful in this very coveted world and how you, you were experiencing your, can I say like fame? And as you say, hiding behind the curtain, do you feel like, and that's such a common, common occurrence, right? Do you think that is an age thing? Do you think that is a societal thing? Uh, of course, it's cultural. We talked about that a little bit. And how do you think right now as a mother, you're a mother too, how do we combat that tendency? I think it's all of the above, right? I, I think that you don't have to be famous to have shame and to hide parts of you. I think people do it on a daily basis. For me at that point, there was just, I can only call it unconsciousness. And I feel what I call earth school, you know, being alive, I think goes through different stages. And, and perhaps if your parents are very conscious people, maybe you can develop that consciousness at a younger age. But I definitely have, you know, a mom who, by the way, is awesome. And, and I learned so much from her and, and, and she's like the best kind of beast, but she had a lot of shame you know, and for her, it was very much what do other people think? How, you know, how do you look? How do you present? As long as you look and you present well, I don't want to know anything else. You know, if yes. there's something negative, you give that to yourself. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so I grew up protecting her, you know, always wanting to protect her from the truth as opposed to, so you're caretaking your parent, you're caretaking your caretaker, instead of your caretaker having the spiritual stamina to be able to hold space for you or for, for me in that case, even after. So here I am as a grown woman with three children in my forties 
And I'm telling my mom, you know, I, I was sexually abused. She knows I was sexually abused. My, that my, the, my um, perpetrator has admitted, you know what I mean? There's no like question mark question yet. about it. Yes. Yeah, no, no. My mom will still say, if this happened, why did you invite him to your wedding? Listen, I got married when I was 26. I was still completely unconscious. I was still trying to play the role of like wanting to get the gold star and getting the praising approval, total people pleasing, which is a very Persian thing to do. And so, yeah, I think it was age. I definitely think it was how I was raised. Is it societal? Maybe back then more so today, like confessional stuff is a little bit more acceptable and sort of the idea of being real in reality. But I think it was all of them. Um, But I think of, like you said, as a mother, so I have three girls Mm. and one of them is a teenager. Fun stuff. Yeah. (laughs) It is fun. For me, it's fun. I love girls. It is fun. It is fun. I'm doing my absolute favorite thing. But it is a mirror, right? It it, it does bring up, you know, all the things. But I love it. Like I'm like, they are my earth school, man. What they project back to me, it's like, oof. But at the same time, unlike my mother, I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to see the hard, you know, the stuff that's hard to digest so that I can digest it and grow. But with my children, I really try to take shame out of everything. I admit when I'm wrong, I I never, ever, ever try to play that card of, I don't know, like if I do something wrong, I'm always upfront about it. It's a different kind of parenting right now, right? I mean, it is an awareness. It is a consciousness. I think, and, and I, I, I'm not like reading like Dr. Shefali's book, you know, <laughs> trying to be the conscious parent. Cause like, honestly, she's awesome, but she makes me crazy. And like, I'm not trying to be perfect. perfect. I'm mm-hmm. sure she's not perfect. I'm just trying to learn, you know, from, I was sexually abused because my mother was sexually abused and never wanted to talk about it and never talked about it, period. And, you know, looked the other way when things were not right out of fear. So I just try to look my fear in the face, whatever it's about, just talk about it. And, you know, we'll see, you know, um, we'll see what my children say when they're 40 something. And I'm sure I've messed plenty up. <laughs> well, we always, I always joke that regardless of what you do, we should always keep the, you know, the jar for, uh, psychotherapy in the future, right? (laughs) Pennies in the jar. Future. I mean, my kids are all in therapy. We love it. (laughs) So, you know, I like also this, this experience you describe of, of the pivot, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, I mean, Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of courage, first of all, to give up a position of prestige. And I think that a lot of times people stay in places that don't serve them, whether it's a job or a relationship uh, or any kind of situation that does not serve them. In my book, uh, Hungry for More, I describe that as a hunger, right? Like it's, it creates an itch or a hunger that, that needs to be addressed. And yet people are afraid of that pivot. It sounds to me like you, things came to a head. Is that right? Or how would you describe your pivot out of that, again, coveted world to a more authentic place. Yeah. Well, first of all, it took a long time, right? So it's not like one pivot from 
I'm a fake bitch too. I am the next Dalai Lama. It definitely didn't happen like that. I'm a spiritual guru. Um, you should tweet that, by the way. <laughs> fake bitch to spiritual Dalai Lama. Very proud of my fake bitch past. You know, it's interesting. What I always tell people when they say, oh, that must have been a hard decision or this must have been a hard decision. Because even my divorce, right? I was with this guy for over a quarter of a century. When the fruit is ready to come off the tree, pops right off. Mm. And it's not a hard decision. There was a point four years into my marriage that I left, but I couldn't quite leave. It didn't feel right. And so I stayed and I kind of wasn't done learning yet, you know, Mm. and when it was ready, when it was time, it was time. And the fruit came right off the tree. Mm. And it was the same with my job. You know, I had created Cosmo Girl, which was, by the way, in its basis, more spiritual magazine. So this has kind of always been there. Like I joke and I say fake bitch. I wasn't really told. Totally of course, it, it was I, under, I, it, it was deep inside. The seeds yeah. were already yeah, there. Yeah, I just wasn't traumatized. I was a person with a lot of childhood abuse <laughs> that had been unprocessed. When I went to 17, I was there, you know, it was easier for me to leave 17 because that wasn't my baby. It was Mm. not a spiritual magazine. It was like more hair, makeup, celebrities. I I gave them a television show with MTV, dressed it up, made it great. And then when my contract was done, I felt like the apple was ready to come off the tree. You know, it was kind of an easy decision. Mm. Uh, It felt like a baller move. Like I definitely did feel like, wow, because that week, I remember the week that I resigned, Vanity Fair wanted to do a profile on me. Like I had been on Saturday Night Live, like maybe like they spoofed me like a few weeks before. So it, you know, it was, I, I knew I was doing something big, but it was an easy decision. I like that you highlighted the process there, because I think particularly in our upbringing, in our kind of time, there was this concept and and it still still persists, but more so back then of continuously going in the right direction, like up and to the right, as if it's like this straight up curve towards a pinnacle of success, right? And a lot of times, well, all the time, this kind of transformation it happens as a long-term process. And yet attachment, I think, to what's expedient, our expectation of something happening right away that's so societal gets in the way of the process, right? We like throw in the towel if we can't accept that reality, that it is, it is going to take time. And also like kind of related to that point, and, and I, I was really lucky that I was able to sort of in the moment realize this with the career piece. I kept getting promoted and I kept getting bigger jobs and bigger jobs and bigger jobs. And at one point, I remember I got an offer for another job that was a bigger job than editor-in-chief of 17. And I remember it being like, what is this expectation that just because I keep getting offered things that say success, that I must keep saying yes? Mm. Isn't there another path? Like, can't I say no? And like, and it was at that point that I was like, fuck yeah. Like, just because the quote unquote path of success might be to take this job because then I'll be blah, blah, blah. It just didn't 
feel good inside of me. I was like, there's something wrong here. I'm not doing that. You know, and who knows, right? Like that movie Sliding Doors. Had I become editor-in-chief of blah, 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 super prestigious magazine, I don't know. You know what I mean? Maybe, I don't know. Would I be happier? I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I think that I probably just would have prolonged, but it wasn't meant to be for me. I think you bring up some great points. The first being just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's, that's an important point because a lot of times, yes, you are faced with a menu and it's enticing in terms of how it looks or you think it'll look on the outside and you feel that you must as women, because we want to break that glass ceiling. We want to be, you know, the first, the first, the first. I had a lot of the firsts before my name or the youngest. Um, and it would have been another, the youngest. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I, I really have no regrets about that. And it's the same with the marriage. Like my friends are always looking at me saying, good Lord, girl, like 26 years. Like, you, like couldn't you have gotten it earlier? I just wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't ready till I was ready. I didn't judge. And it was the same with weight loss because there was a point in my life after I had my twins. And I think I was feeling really sort of the marriage was heavy on me and I wanted it to be something didn't feel right. And I wanted it to be anything but the, but the marriage, right. Cause now I have three kids and I hadn't worked for a long time. Just like the whole thing was like, okay, anything but that, right? It could be anything but that. And I just kept gaining weight. I didn't, this, it was the strangest thing. I wouldn't go on a diet. I just wouldn't. And, and it was making my husband crazy, right? Because he married this hot 26-year-old girl. And then all of a sudden, I ballooned up to almost 200 pounds. And I wouldn't lose weight that way because I felt that it was fear-based. And I didn't, like I knew, cause I'd done it before that I could go on a cleanse. I could do whatever, whatever I could do a diet. I knew I'd lose the weight, but I knew whatever was making me eat would still be there. And then I just do the thing that so many people do the up and the down. And so I just was like, no, no, I have to sit in this. I have to understand what why? Why am I doing this? Why? And, um, and to do it through love instead of fear, right? The dieting felt fear-based. And I just, so what I would do is when I would go to, like, there was this, what one thing that was deadly for me were these sandwich shops, um, like Maison Kaiser, I would go and get like a big sandwich. And I, and when I'd go and grab one of those or like a cream puff or whatever, I would just be like, hmm, what's going on for you? And I would literally talk out loud to myself. I want to dig into this a little bit because there are stages, right? There's a stage which I want to come back to because I don't want to lose the momentum here. But there's a stage where you're, uh, you know, in that world of Seventeen magazine and presumably needing to keep that image as the editor of that magazine. And then you went through this period you're describing now in which you had a weight gain because, as you say, you were kind of maybe de-identifying from that role of uh, the hot wife, but you were aware of it. Were you always aware of it? Were you always um, questioning why am I doing this? Or was there a time in where you experienced weight gain that you were like, you know, how did I get here? Can you, can you yeah. first describe that process of weight gain and what you were experiencing in terms well, of why? 
First of all, I would say I never felt the pressure to have any image when I was working. That was my image. That was me. I was in college. I was a hot girl in media. I was a hot girl. Like I was always a hot girl. Like, I don't mean that. I can say that now because now I'm 50. I'm going to be 50 next week. (laughs) And congratulations. Thank you. I could look at that hot girl and be like, you go girl. I always would say to people when I got heavy, (laughs) I have no, I kind of have no regrets because when I was young and hot, I looked like a total hoe every single day. I I showed my body. So yeah, I never felt the pressure, but by the time I had my twins, which was in 2012, I had started to feel really heavy about, because I stopped working in 2007-ish. So in that time, like at first there was the newness of my first baby and this is fun and oh, wow, I can keep house and oh, I'm someone's wife instead of him essentially introducing himself as my husband. So there were a couple of years where it was all kind of new and fun. But then when I had my twins, there, there was this kind of a big psychological burden of having twins. That was really intense and hard for me. And is that when the weight gain began? like post-pregnancy of these twins and you're, and you're describing it as a psychological burden, which I think it's important because a lot of times we think, oh, it's pregnancy. And of course that's a natural, you know, consequence of burying a child is to gain weight. But I think it, we don't dial into that emotional piece, which then if not dealt with kind of spirals out of control. And that, that psychological burden You know, I think that every mother, you know, you have to sort of psychologically take in this soul and love this soul and like understand and just kind of get integrated with each other. But then when you, and that's kind of hard enough. Sometimes some parents have two at once. And that was really like, who are you and who are you? And how do I become, you know, really entangled with you in a way that is, it just was hard. It was really hard. And he, it was so hard for him. He completely checked out. And so it was me and these kids and now suddenly three kids. And it just, the whole thing was hard for me. And then all of a sudden I'm like a mom at schools and that's just not my jam. You know, I am that person. I am very much like, I like to work on a team and I like to be creative and they're just it was a different stage of life. And it is hard, right? But we don't we don't talk about, especially in that early stage, I think the way motherhood is portrayed is, you know, everyone kind of pops back into shape and they're happily breastfeeding and riding around in a cute little carriage looking stroller. Mm-hmm. I think if more people really talk about how hard that process is, how hard the breastfeeding is, then it's less of a psychological burden because we can accept that it, it takes time to integrate that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I do. Yes. Yes. But I will tell you that I still think no matter what, that's the piece we need to talk about is that these are souls These are new souls that you have to really gel with and that you have to get to know and just get integrated with. Because it's like, you know, we know that the breastfeeding is hard. We know that the sleep is hard and it is all of this stuff compounds, but no one talks about this human. And in my case, two humans, some people have three or four at once. It just was really hard for some reason, psychologically. And then there was the, 
I wasn't really into my husband. I mean, I hate to say it like that. He's a cool guy. He's wonderful. So many wonderful things I could say about him, but like, I wasn't into him, you know? Would you say that that kind of, I'm going to call it hunger for connection. Would you say that that fueled the, the weight gain as well? hundred percent. Like I was feeling lonely. I was feeling empty. I wanted, I wanted a connection. I wanted creativity. I mean, there were so many things I was hungry for. So I was just feeding those and all, yeah, I was just feeding, feeding myself instead. So it was really interesting about like, during this time, I started to then just write my memoir. And in writing my memoir, I became reacquainted with who I was pre-working. Mm. Um, because once you start working, and I'm sure to, to a large extent, you experience this too. Like you become almost a stamp of a person because everybody who meets with you ex- expects the person they know you as professionally. And you have to keep being that person over and over again. You stamp fall into this again. kind of box uh, into this room. Yeah. Right. And there's so much, you're dynamic and you're changing all the time and there's just no space for that. And so I had become really good at being a stamp of this person called Atusa Rubenstein, um, who is like a girl power advocate. And, but, you know, I was just much, there was a lot more complexity to me. So in writing this memoir, I became reacquainted with that complexity. And so I had so much more compassion for myself. And it was through that lens of compassion that when I would reach for certain foods, I would just do a check-in, be like, hey, babe, are you okay? I, I love so much of what you just said. I think it is so important that number one, and I talk about this a lot because after the book got published, a lot of people were like, well, how do I know? How do I know my hunger? How do I figure out what my hunger is? And I mean, any introspective process, I think, can bring this about. But writing is such a powerful tool, I think. And and to your point, to really explore. And it comes up, right? I mean, it, it comes up as you are engaged in this process. The well, second artist's yeah. way is great. Have you ever done the artist's way? No. Um, the system that Julia Cameron created, one of the things that one of the components of the artist's way is that you write three pages longhand every morning before the morning you- pages, the morning yes. pages. Yes. And my, I, I still do that. And my morning pages are so helpful for me to mm. do that check-in because you, you know, you're never safe from hunger. You know what I mean? Like sure. hair goes away. Yes. It never goes away. Yeah. And it might pop from this it part. It morphs or evolves. Of, yeah. yeah. And it's a really great way of just sort of tapping into your subconscious mind. I love that. And yes. So I think one takeaway point, because we always like to talk about actionable bites on Health Bite, is really using that very early morning or beginning morning, early or not, our, uh, time to just write and to make it a routine or a practice to do the morning pages, two or three pages every morning. And that is when you really get to tap into kind of that subconscious space. The second thing I want to highlight is this place of compassion that you came to and how it sounds like that was a catalyst 
for change in terms of how you were treating your body, because oftentimes, and I think, well, if you believe the data right now, 49% of the population has experienced weight gain during the pandemic. And even before that, 80% of the population was overweight or obese. Nobody likes that term. So let's just say overweight or has excess weight, right? That's a hell of a lot of people who are struggling with this and who may be at this point now we're at the new year and everyone's into that new year, you know, garbage <laughs> in terms of resolutions, right? That they're grappling with this. Oftentimes when we, well, I would say almost all the time, when we grapple with this issue of excess weight, it is from a place of shame self-flagellation or self-deprecation. You think you can bully yourself into change. And that is so false. And one of I the reasons- the New Year resolution is a big bully. It makes me so angry when yes. I see the cleanses and everything for January. Absolutely. But this place of, and this is science-based. I mean, there's many medical scientific studies that show when you can approach yourself from a place of self-compassion, yes, you can have a goal to lose that 20, 40 pounds. It doesn't take away from your goal. But if you can approach it from a place of self-compassion, you are much more likely to change. And this is such a hard nugget to get people to swallow. So I really want to hone in on that. You know, it was very intuitive for me. Like I just knew that, and it's probably because I have a spiritual practice and, um, but something about, I knew it had to come from love because I, I, I'm not somebody who necessarily was battling weight my whole life. This was like a new thing. And I think that's probably why I had curiosity about it as opposed to judgment. Hmm. I wasn't like, oh, Tusa, you're such a fat, like gross. I just was like, huh, this is strange. What's this about? And so it was easier for me to access compassion from curiosity as opposed to judgment. So you never had that, I call it the NASDAQ in your mind, um, you know, that like running thread of negative thinking that wasn't something that you faced. I had like, I had a running thread of attention to the topic. Like I was very aware of it. It wasn't like, I woke up one day and I was like, wow, I'm a hundred pounds heavier. You know, it wasn't like that. It was, I was aware where, where it was going, but I just was like, rather than sometimes I would judge myself like, oh, I guess I knew right away that that wasn't the way to go. This is how it happened is because I noticed that every time I woke up and I was like, today you're going to eat well. The first thing I do is be like, let me have one of those brownies. Yes. (laughs) I just was smart enough to know, like, that's not working. (laughs) You know, that's not working. Let me, and I just knew that I I knew fear-based thinking in general is not the way to go. And, and I think that's largely because of my upbringing being so fear-based. And so I knew I wanted to try a different You had experienced way. it already. You had experienced yeah. that. I think, I think that everybody has that, that intuition, right? I think everybody has that. I mean, you, you say that you have this kind of spiritual inclination, But I think everybody has that intuition that they're not serving themselves when they speak from a place of shame or fear or bullying. And I always tell people, like, 
how do you feel when you say something, right? If it doesn't feel good, Mm. then it's probably not the right approach, right? If you feel bad inside, right? Or feel like this isn't something that you would necessarily say to somebody else, that is not your your intuition speaking. And so, you know, as opposed to, because as I hear you and, you know, speak and you you say that this isn't something that you've grappled with, you, you were lucky in that sense. There are a lot of people who grapple with it and have since childhood. But even for them, I want to say that, the intuition that you're describing is there. It's just that they haven't slowed down enough to listen to it. Well, and the other thing I would add to it, um, there's two things because my husband, who, by the way, he is like the, one of those guys, same weight as he has been in high school, kind of manorexic, to be honest. His father was morbidly obese. Mm. And so the one thing I noticed about him, because he was very afraid when I was heavy, because for him, it was a traumatic thing relating to his childhood. It's hard if your parents grappled with weight and low self-esteem, because that just like osmosis probably becomes part of your own orientation. And I'm so lucky. I didn't have that in my family at all. My mom not once my entire childhood did she ever mention her weight, her body, or anybody else's, mm-hmm. unless it was something really exaggerated, which is a c- kind of uncommon. So I, I do think that that's probably why I didn't struggle with it, because it just wasn't a struggle for my parents. Which is such a great point to us so. mothers, right? Because um, we can't undo what what our parents did or did not do, but recognizing, and this is so common, I see it so often in my practice, moms bringing their young adults or, you know, teens for weight loss and understanding that it has to come from within. And that conversation, even if it's clearly, if it's towards the child, but even if it's towards yourself Mm -hmm. is modeled behavior to that child. My children have never thought about their bodies until their dad who does think a lot about his body is um, engaged to a woman who clearly thinks a lot about her body. And my children have picked up a lot of phrases, words, and, and just energy from them. And so now, you know, one of my kids is constantly thinking about how she looks and, and whatnot. I don't think you can avoid it in this, you know, you can't avoid it in this culture. It's everywhere. And weight bias is, significant. You were going to say something. Yeah. There's something else that I think I did that was really unusual in case it's helpful to your readers. If you think it has value. I really looked at my weight gain as almost like a a voyage. Like I had so much curiosity about it. I knew that I was going to learn something from this whole experience that added to the lack of judgment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Stop on my journey. I was actually thinking this as you were speaking, you know, throughout that, that the way you describe it, you were separate from the weight gain. You can only have curiosity about something when you don't internalize it. This is another point that I want to highlight and thanks for bringing it, you know, to, to the forefront, which is when people internalize and there's data here, when they internalize the body image issues and when they internalize weight bias, they are not only less likely to lose weight, 
but it's actually associated with medical conditions that are unrelated to weight. So that internalization of the negativity is so profound that it harms people physically, forget mm. mentally, obviously mentally, right? Emotionally. Well, how, what are some things that it does for them? So internalizing this weight bias has been shown to increase metabolic syndrome, and it actually has been shown to increase the risk of death. It's mm. crazy. And negative thinking in general, they've linked to even like dementia and Alzheimer's disease outside of, you know, weight related thinking. So, but there is a way to kind of um, dissociate, right? And that is to not as hard as it is, because we self-identify our, we identify with so many of these kind of characteristics We're runners, we're writers, we're thin, we're fat, we're, you know, whatever the case may be. We, we label ourselves, but if we can de-identify and kind of look at that thing, the pandemic weight gain as a thing that is not us, but mm -hmm. separate from us, mm -hmm. then it becomes something that we can actually successfully deal with. I like to always think of me and myself as a, my younger selves, and that's helps me de-identify with whatever it is I'm going through in the, in the time. And I just try to think about like, I'm sitting here right now at my desk, you know? So I always have a picture of me from when I was younger and that's who I'm trying to take care of as opposed to, you know, the grown up me. I love that practice of, um, for those people who are listening and not watching, Atusa just showed a picture of her herself as a youngster that she keeps on her desk. And that's such a nice practice of keeping a photo of your younger self to remind yourself that um, you are somebody's child too, right? And so if you wouldn't treat a child a certain way or talk to a child a certain way, then you probably shouldn't, not probably, you shouldn't be talking that way to yourself. So that's a nice practice, a nice reminder to keep a photo that way. So yes, the process of kind of, or this concept of de-identifying, seeing the thing with curiosity, not, not being the weight, but just seeing it as something that is outside of yourself. That and also it could be a teacher. Absolutely there to teach you something about yourself and the hungers, right? So this is the hunger is a teacher. So, you know, your hunger for connection in terms of your husband presented as weight gain, but had you not had that hunger present, you may have not seen that the relationship needed to change. That is the sign, right? I wouldn't have been hungry if the relationship didn't need to change. I don't even think, yeah. So it's like, you couldn't have one without the other. Right. But it takes knowing, right? It takes being tuned in. Okay. So now you're a hundred pounds overweight. You're doing your morning pages. Uh, you used to be a hottie. Maybe we'll get back to that. So what happened? How did things kind of turn around for you? It just was like so teeny weeny, you know, it was like little tiny steps of just writing the memoir and physically moving in ways that felt right. Like I never had to, I never really forced myself to do something that felt wrong. And then I wouldn't do it again. You know what I mean? So it was bite-sized. Like when I'd watch TV at night, I had a foam roller 
And believe it or not, and, and I'm sure you know why, and I don't know why, but I just did this intuitively. I just started rolling my body out every single night when he and I would watch television. And something about whatever shifted energetically with the rolling was very important. Because next thing I know, I am then going to the gym and I'm really enjoying going to the gym again, because I'm not like making myself do things that were uncomfortable that I would want to not go the next day. It was a great place for me to listen to podcasts and listen to music. And I just would just, just like little, little, little steps. And then I had a trainer and that was fun. I liked her as a person. And there's, do you know Alejandro Younger? He's based in LA. He, um, he was my doctor in New York. And then he created this thing called the clean program, which is like a detox. Gwyneth Paltrow writes about it a lot. She used mm. to see him as well as a doctor. I did his program for 30 days. What I like about it is it's just, you know, clean, clean food. Like you're taking out, you know, uh, refined sugars and blah, blah, blah. And then he has a couple of those medical shakes. I did that. I found it helpful to follow a program because for me, I needed the structure. Routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just like the routine. Before I got to the end of that 30 days, I felt, I was like, I need to do another round of this. I'm not ready yet. Like I still like, I felt that feeling of can't wait to have the hot fudge Sunday. <laughs> So I was like, this is not right. So I did it for another 30 days. And that's what it took. Like for me to just kick the the habitual pieces of wanting the sugar and the, you know, tons of carbohydrates and all that stuff. And then it just became more habit of how I ate. And that was it. I mean, it just happened over the course of months, not a long time. And yeah. And but so- months, not 30 days. No, right. Months, which is also the 30 days was just kicking my habitual sugar habit because that was that was a problem for me. And so I just point that out because I think we buy into that fallacy of like 30 days and all, you know, everything changes. And that's not the case. It is a long term process. But as we kind of we've been talking now for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so. I just want to point out, you know, I think these are things that we talk about on this podcast a lot. And it's in, you know, I talk about in the book, but you talked about um, gathering your army, right? So you had a trainer, you had a doctor, you know, whatever. So I think it's very important when you're trying to do something, create change, that you gather an army that of like-minded people who can help. Um, habit stacking, which is going to the gym and, and listening to podcasts or music that you like. So you can make things more enjoyable when you connect it right to something that you typically do or typically like. Um, I really like the fact that you on multiple at multiple times talking about being really attuned to your body and attuned to how you feel. So when you hear lose 21 pounds in 21 days or belly buster and it doesn't feel good, then it, then that's probably not the right way to go, right? So trust that intuition. Um, bite-sized, right? Small steps are important and add up to significant change. I actually was listening this morning to some, I can't remember his name. I wish I could, because I would like to credit him, but some general 
who talks about, um, I think he has a TED talk about make your bed and change the world. And his whole thing is that small step of making your bed every morning and that feeling of fulfillment you get out of that then becomes the next small step, this next small step. So we can't dismiss how small steps over time become significant. Um, is there anything else that you could, you would like to add as uh, in terms of like big ticket items uh, that you think are important? Just that, that, that self-love and compassion is yes. as has to be the soundtrack, you know, like you cannot do it because you, you feel embarrassed. You can't do it because you're, you think you're a loser. You can't do it because you're worried you're going to lose your husband or boyfriend or never find one. You have to do it because you deserve to be happy and you deserve all good things, good health, good relationships, good, you know, it has to come from that place of love. And, you know, sometimes I think people think that sounds so woo woo that they just mm. want to skip over it and be yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it this other way, you know, but that you can't do it. You'll keep going back until that foundation is built um, in something positive. Yeah. I think that's such a perfect nugget to end with. And I'll just add to that because people do feel that it's a little bit ooey gooey. And also, even if they, you know, they don't know quite how to start. And so I would say that if you're interested in cultivating self-compassion, um, there are practices out there like self-compassion meditations. Um, there's books about it. There are practices like the morning pages. Um, and just, you know, even the practice of spending, you know, quiet time with yourself, five minutes outdoors uh, of quiet is a way to kind of cultivate these practices. So um, if self-love and self-compassion sound, sound you, those are some steps that we can take to initiate that. Thank you, Atusa, for Thank joining you me. So much for having it me. was a really was nice fun. conversation. Thank you. You're so smart. I love that your patients have access to you like right there. And you just are such a wealth of both compassion and information. It's really oh, that's kind of you and you as well. And we'll remind our listeners that they can get more of you um, at atusa.substack.com listening to or reading your love letters, as they say. And I hope that we get to talk again soon. Thank Me you. Too. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week. I want to thank you for your time and specifically wanted to thank our gracious guest, Atusa, for joining us this week. Once again, you can connect with her at atusa.substack.com and you can connect with me at Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem or email me via my website at dradrianudeem.com. I do see every email and I do answer. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.